Shadow Talk. In this week's Shadow Talk, Richard Gold joins us to discuss the issue of security debt and how many of the attacks we see on a regular basis are actually a result of security risks that accumulate over time. In part two, we cover the recent website defacement attack and data breach incident targeting the event ticketing company Ticketplug. All this to come on this week's Shadow Talk. Hello and welcome to another edition of Shadow Talk. I'm your host, Rafael Amado. Joining us again this week, it's Dr. Richard Gold. Welcome back, Richard. Hi there. And our second guest, stationed out in Dallas, it's Harrison Van Riper. Harrison, good to have you back with us. Hey, good to be back. Good. All right, let's kick things off. So, a more streamlined show this week, but still a lot to get through. Now, in part one, we're discussing the topic of security debt and the ticking time bomb that this represents for organizations. For those who may not have come across the term, security debt is often used to refer to the accumulation of security risks over time. So we're talking about missed patches, misapplied configurations, mismanaged user accounts. Richard, I know this is a topic you're keen to sink your teeth into. Can you maybe give us a more practical example of what we mean by security debt? Absolutely. So security debt, as you mentioned, is this accumulation over time of things that have gone just a little bit wrong. And the frightening thing about it is as time goes on, these things, these little pieces all add up to quite serious things. Um, Stephen Chenet, who is one of the co-founders of Attack IQ, has a pretty nice phrase where he says, uh, even after deployment, many security controls, regardless of how they are implemented, have a high rate of failure, misconfiguration, or obsolescence. I think this is really gets to the heart of what we struggle to deal with as people who are defending organizations. Not only do we have the issue of making sure that our IT systems are running well, are up to date, and so on, we also have this issue that the security controls that we put in place, ostensibly to protect our networks, can cause us problems or can simply fail, and fail in a, in a silent way that we are simply unaware of what's going on. Now, the UK government has a fantastic paper called Managing Information Risk at Official Level, or the official classification level. It's, it's a great little read, and um, it goes over a couple of things which I think are absolutely key to this notion of security debt. They talk about that the majority of information risk can be successfully managed by getting the basics right, good governance, staff awareness, and well-maintained modern IT systems. That sounds very easy, and this will be a continuing theme, is that there are no easy answers to security debt and the risk that it poses to organizations. If it was, if it was straightforward, I guess we probably wouldn't be interested in discussing it on the podcast. So if we just take the example of the well-maintained modern IT systems, we have issues like publicly available exploits for known software vulnerabilities. So that is organizations not patching promptly. A great example of that was the Experian hack, which was very well publicized. The vulnerability was known about for, for months. There's issues with misconfigured or poorly implemented boundary defenses, such as firewalls, VPNs even. User account management is not done right. Accounts are not life-cycled correctly. Systems are not hardened. 
and the networks and services are not appropriately architected for the risks that they face. And this all kind of comes back to that, that great quote from Rob Joyce that we had the other, the other week on the show, which was, you have to put the time in to really know your network. The attackers know what you have really deployed in your network. You know what you think you've deployed. And putting that time into really understanding your network, I think, is one of the most effective antidotes to security debt. So, Richard, on like a, on like a very practical, like re- realistic level, what, what would that look like if you're, if you're trying to understand your environment better? What, what are some of the steps and processes listeners or organizations should be take, taking? Because a lot of the time, a lot of this stuff sounds, as you said, A, quite simple, but in reality, quite hard to achieve. And also when we're talking about it at this high level, it might be quite just difficult to picture exactly what, what these day-to-day processes might actually be. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So if, you, if we start with step zero, which is effectively knowing which assets you are tasked with protecting. Now, a lot of security policies, for example, the SANS critical controls, talk about how asset inventory is the most important thing. And it's also probably the hardest thing to get right. I don't think, I can't really imagine there's a single organization that feels completely comfortable with their own asset inventory. But you need to start by looking at what are your assets which are exposed externally? So which IP address ranges or IP addresses do you have which are available externally? This of course becomes much more difficult when we talk about the cloud. In, a, in large organizations, it may be the case that employees have spun up environments in cloud systems like Azure or AWS or Google Compute, and this is not known by the IT administrators. So this is a challenge and requires that there is sufficient trust between the dev teams and the, the IT people to be able for them to talk about what environments they have created externally. So you need to know what your surface your attack surface is from the outside. And depending on the organization, they may be happy with you doing a little bit of proactive work there. So using tools like Nmap to scan the ranges which are supposed to be belonging to you, of course, the ones which you are supposed to be protecting. And that can give you an idea about what tools and services and applications are exposed to the outside world. Also, there are services like Shodan, which allow you to do this kind of searching as well, to search their database of port scans. And this is just a way to reduce your uncertainty about what your external environment is. And then for the internal environment, it typically these days is a lot of Microsoft Active Directory. So knowing what your Active Directory looks like, knowing what machines are joined to the domain, and tools like Bloodhound, which is a way to visualize relationships in Active Directory is very, very good for giving that visual overview of what systems are currently present in the network. And are these processes and techniques that only larger, maybe enterprise level organizations can can manage to achieve? Or are there any tips you have for smaller organizations as well? So one thing I would say is that there are, there are tools that are given as part of the operating systems that we use for handling this kind of security debt to, to an extent. So if you're running a Microsoft network, they have tools like Windows Server Update Services, WSIS, 
SCCM, the System Center Configuration Manager, which are tools you can use to manage your network to look for unpatched machines and to deploy security patches. Linux distributions allow for unattended upgrades as well, so you can even specify just the security patches, or you can specify that everything should be patched. MacOS is quite good at updating. Just that there are tools out there to help you manage this debt. It doesn't have to be the case that you need to spend a lot of money on software or services or appliances. Often the built-in tools which are available are pretty good to get you started. And that this is a, this is a long journey. So you, you can't boil the ocean. Every, every organization has security debt and it does take time to get a handle on it. Even for us as a small company, it's a constant challenge to get on top of our security debt and make sure that that is kept to the absolute minimum. So Rich, while you were talking about trying to identify attack surfaces and an organization's infrastructure, my mind immediately goes to the techniques that threat actors might be using also to do their initial reconnaissance and then to perform their actual attacks. So what, what I'd like to hear from you is how exactly are threat actors applying security to their kill chains? If we look at the, um, for example, a, a pen test is done or, or an APT campaign, the first stage is the reconnaissance stage. And that's kind of this asset inventory that I, that I mentioned previously. And yeah, that's done by looking at, for example, historical DNS data, for look, identifying which hosts belong to a particular company or organization, so which subdomains are available. It's about scanning the IP ranges using Nmap or MassScan or something like this to see which services are there. And then <clears throat> if there's something which is identified which is of particular interest, they may be using specific tools to then interrogate that instance. For example, if there's a, Word, a WordPress CMS which is of particular interest and the attackers may use this particular tool like WP scan for interrogating that WordPress instance. And essentially they're going to be building up a picture of what that network looks like from the outside and trying to identify either outdated systems. So a lot of software server software will return in the banner when you talk to it initially over the network, which version it is which is a gold mine for attackers because that way you can try to figure out if a particular service is vulnerable without having to exploit it first so you don't have to be so noisy. And once you've built up this picture of what software is running on these uh, network ranges, you could then look to see if you have in your you know, bag of tricks and the attacker's bag of tricks which exploits you have. Maybe you have an exploit for a vulnerable version of some server that's running, or maybe you start to do more manual work and look for a way that the server is misconfigured, or does it have default credentials? Does it have weak credentials? Some, many services are still vulnerable to brute forcing, so they don't uh, slow you down if you make too many bad login attempts. And they're trying to identify just those, that little foothold just to get in. Maybe there's a web application vulnerability, maybe there's SQL injection, something like this which will enable them to get that initial foothold now. And once they have the foothold, then they can move on to the next stage of the attack, maintaining persistence, lateral movement, and, and so on. So this is obviously a very broad topic with a lot of facets to it. Richard, if there's one thing you want our listeners to take away when it comes to thinking about security debt, what would that be? I would say that it requires a lot of time and effort to get 
really familiar with an environment to understand which machines are running, which software is running, who the users are, what are their roles. And it's a lot, a lot of work. But if there's one thing that's going to help you secure your environment, it's really understanding it, understanding how it's built, how it's structured, and how it works. It's not easy, but it's really worth it. Thank you, Richard. Some great insights there into the topic of security debt, which I'm sure we'll cover again in a future podcast. And that report that Richard mentioned, the UK government managing information risk at an official level, we'll put a link for that at the bottom of the synopsis for this podcast. Welcome to part two. Now, on 31st of May, the event ticketing company Ticketfly suspended all online operations following a website defacement attack and a data breach. The data was uploaded to a public server and then confirmed by Ticketfly as being legitimate. Now, the threat actor claiming responsibility has been associated with ideologically motivated hacktivism in the past. But in this case, they demanded payment from Ticketfly in return for a disclosure of details for the apparent vulnerability that they exploited. Harrison, you've been covering this incident this week. Can you give us a little more info in how this story exactly played out? Sure. So this week, Ticketfly, which is an event ticketing company, um, basically their main website, Ticketfly.com, was defaced by a threat actor. Their defacement message included links to what appeared to be Ticketfly customer details and uh, a threat to release another database in the future. There was also a WordPress database, which is a blogging platform that was apparently associated with Ticketfly as well. Along with the main Ticketfly website, there were several other websites for different music venues that were also defaced with the same uh, page. And so when Ticketfly kind of discovered all this was going on, they took the whole website and the service itself offline and then, you know, posted an apology to Twitter and said that they were investigating the incident. The actor also allegedly reached out to journalists and claimed that they had offered to reveal the vulnerability that was exploited to uh, to Ticketfly in exchange for one Bitcoin. Uh, but Ticketfly did not respond, which is what led to the defacement and uh, the subsequent release of customer information. Thanks for that, Harrison. What I'm more interested in here is that you've been doing some investigation into the incident, into the threat actor. So what additional information have you found that wasn't really in the public reporting? Yeah, so when we were looking into the incident, there were a few of the defacement pages that were still available online. So we looked into the HTML source code for the page, and there was a reference string to Zone H, which is a defacement reporting website. And within the string itself, there was a mention of a Zone H user. And so we kind of dug into that a little bit, and looking through the user's defacement history, you know, from the different defacement messages that they've been associated with, they claim to be associated with the Falaga team, which is a Tunisia-based uh, hacktivist group. And they've, you know, kind of conducted a lot of different defacement attacks in the past. The email address that was used and posted along with the defacement message was found on some other websites as well, but didn't necessarily associate themselves with the original threat actor and then also with this, with the Zone H user. So, uh, it's just kind of an interesting connection between between this user and the Falaga team. There wasn't like any sort of ideological message that was associated with the defacement. So um, it was kind of more likely that the actor was acting more opportunistically as opposed to 
a specific kind of attack against Ticketfly or anything like that. And has there been any information on the vulnerability that they allegedly exploited? No, last time I checked, there was not. Uh, but, you know, as, as I said earlier, the actor did allegedly reach out and say that they'd claimed to kind of give up the vulnerability to Ticketfly. But since they didn't, that's what led to this release. There was some speculation that since the WordPress database was released along with the customer details, that it could be a vulnerability within WordPress. You know, we've kind of reported on it a few times in the past that WordPress has had some vulnerabilities been exploited several times by threat actors in the past. So that's definitely a possibility, but there's no there's no concrete details right now. Okay, and finally, looking beyond Ticketfly and its customers directly, are there any lessons here for, for listeners for, or for general organizations? As with, we saw, as we mentioned earlier, the, the Experian hack, which is, this is vaguely reminiscent that an externally facing service was exploited over the network. The, the use of the exploit to compromise the, the machine over the network is not the be all and end all. What is, makes these incidents so severe was what happened afterwards. And that's really dependent upon what the security architecture looked like as a whole. So once the attackers were able to compromise this machine and get on, were there controls in place to prevent them from completing their goal? In the case of the Experian hack, and as it seems the Ticketfly hack, there was not the appropriate controls in place to prevent the attackers from being able to access the data that they wanted to. Now, in some cases, when you have what they call a hot database, which always needs to be accessed, you can't really rely on encryption but you can use access control to prevent certain accounts from accessing certain types of data. There's monitoring that can be put in place to make sure that the data is only accessed in a way that it is supposed to be accessed. There's access control lists that can be put in place to limit what certain accounts can do. There's an entire security architecture. There's an entire process around how to manage the risk that comes from exposing these assets to the internet. And that is something which I think needs to be really highlighted. And uh, often in the the press reporting, the focus tends to be more on how the attackers gained access rather than how the attackers completed their goals. And I think in order for organizations to protect themselves effectively, we need to be thinking much more about how to increase attacker costs how to perform this adversary obstruction, how to make it difficult for the attackers to achieve their goals rather than thinking the attackers can be kept out forever. A great point there. Thank you very much, Richard. And I think we're out of time. So thank you to my guests, both Richard Gold and Harrison Weinreiper. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Have a good week. For more research from the Digital Shadows team, visit resources at digitalshadows.com.